T-minus 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9, ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour, liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. Okay, engine stop. APA at a defense. Host control both autos. Engine and command override off. Engine arm off. 413 is in. We copy it down, Eagle. Listen, uh, Tranquility Base here. My guest today is a veteran of four NASA space missions, Gemini 7, Gemini 12, Apollo 8, and Apollo 13. Captain Jim Lovell, many thanks for being with us today. Nice to be here. Uh, I'd like to talk about Gemini 7, a very important mission for you and Frank Borman. Nine days after the launch of Gemini 7, Gemini 6 was launched. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the rendezvous and some of the science experiments in the mission. Uh, yeah, Gemini was, uh, 7 was uh, very instrumental basically in two areas. One was long-term duration. A lot of people didn't think that we could stay in a zero-gravity environment for, for two weeks, and, of course, that proved out uh, that we could. The second one was the rendezvous, which was sort of uh, ad-lib. It wasn't supposed to be that way. Gemini 6 was going to launch before 7, and they were going to rendezvous with an Agena spacecraft uh, un unmanned, uh, and they were going to rendezvous and dock with it. And this is going to be the first test of a rendezvous and a docking of a spacecraft that, of course, would be required in the Apollo program. Well, the Agena didn't make it into space, and uh, consequently, the Gemini 6 was not launched. And Gemini 7 instead was launched. But then they were able to turn Gemini 6 around in time enough to rendezvous with Gemini 7 before Gemini 7 had to come back from its two-week mission. So that rendezvous, although we could not dock, we didn't have a docking facility, but that rendezvous was the first test of a rendezvous of two spacecraft in uh, orbit. A very important mission, for sure. Yes. Also, you uh, performed science experiments during the mission? Uh, Gemini uh, 7 did, yes. We had 23, actually, medical uh, experiments <laughs> uh, because this was a medical flight, basically. Uh, they took blood pressure. They took uh, heart rate. Uh, uh, we had uh, uh, you know, ways of uh, trying to you know, keep in shape, but they were not successful. Uh, it, the spacecraft itself was just too small uh, for uh, doing any uh, active uh, programs 
to get fit. You're in such a cramped area. In fact, uh, uh, about the size of a small Volkswagen, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> a very small Volkswagen, as a matter of fact. Uh, Volkswagen probably has some, some extra room in it compared to, to Gemini. 14 days in space, uh, that's a lot longer than it would take to go to the moon and back. It was the maximum time they figured that a lunar flight would, uh, would occur, and that's what set that two-week mission that way. Uh, and uh, it proved out to be uh, very successful, but uh, we could really tell the effects of uh, not doing anything for two weeks uh, and, and being at zero gravity. And uh, the results of that, plus many other experiments of future spacecraft, we now have, of course, on the International Space Station, uh, a regular series of uh, fitness uh, equipment so that the astronauts could stay in shape over a long period of time. Yes, I would think it'd be difficult to fit a treadmill inside of a Gemini capsule. <laughs> um, I have a question, is that you're in space for 14 days, and, of course, you're exerting very little energy and moving around, as you said, very little. How does your sleep patterns, how would that work? Do you actually get enough sleep? Uh, actually, yes. Uh, you know, in reality, uh, on the Earth, we are accustomed to a, uh, a day-night cycle as far as sleep goes. We go to sleep at night uh, and, uh, of course, wake up uh, basically in the daylight. And uh, But in space, there. Uh, in Germany, there is. I mean, you do have days and nights, but they're only about 45 minutes apiece. So you start to sleep when you get tired, and then you wake up, uh, you feel refreshed. So it's merely instead of taking one long gulp of sleep, you, you take little sips of sleep, uh, and then when you feel refreshed, you get up again and uh, do things, and when you uh, are not, uh, you feel tired, you go to sleep. Like little catnaps, I guess, and but you didn't, you weren't exhausted. You did get enough rest. You know? Oh yeah, we had plenty of rest, and sleeping was uh, so natural. You just uh, put your your fingers, you clasp your fingers together to keep your arms from floating, and then just close your eyes, and and you're just in uh, suspension. You know, you're not on the seat itself. You have a seatbelt loosely around your waist, and that's about it. Being in very close quarters like that, eating, uh, using the bathroom, the conditions must have been very difficult for 14 days, I would think. Well, 14 days is a long time to be in a small capsule. Uh, and, uh, you know, Apollo you know, got to be a little bit better. But it, uh, it proved the point. You know, uh, the Gemini program was very successful. We got rendezvous down pat. We, we knew we could leave for a long period of time. And we eventually got the uh, EVA, Extra Vehicle Operation, uh, uh, down so we could go outside of a spacecraft and work on it. Uh, yeah, actually, I was just going to mention Gemini 12, and that, that was the last Gemini mission. That was the last Gemini mission, and one of its highlights was to figure out ways of having somebody work outside the spacecraft. And we did that by uh, renting a small... Well, that was not too small, but it's a boys' pool up in Baltimore, and we sunk a mock-up of the back end of a Gemini 12 spacecraft, and then we had Buzz Aldrin in a spacesuit, which works just as well underwater as it does in space, and made it neutrally buoyant by lead weights, and then we had manufactured a series of holes that would be outside the spacecraft to see if he could use these holes uh, and combat this. Newton's third law of motion was says that every action there's an opposite and equal reaction, which meant that 
when the Earth's gravity was neutralized in space, then the spacecraft itself was a fairly attractive uh, device, and, but it would tend to repel you when you went against it. So uh, that was uh, very successful and, uh, and proved out we could work in space. A very important mission for, again, for uh, the Apollo missions. Yeah, um, that led to the Apollo. And from a Gemini to Apollo, um, uh, success, unfortunately, doesn't come without difficulties and, and sometimes tragedies. Uh, of course, just a little less than two years before the flight of Apollo 11, the Apollo 1 fire took the uh, lives of Chaffee, Grissom, and White. Um, the b- space program was basically at a halt. What kind of impact uh, that have on Apollo 8 and the rest of the, the Apollo program? Well, when the Apollo fire occurred, we were, of course, quite concerned of, you know, what was that going to do to the space program? Just what was going to happen to it? Uh, but uh, I have to give uh, NASA credit. They uh, completely uh, had re, uh, not, not completely designed, but looked at the problem and changed the spacecraft to a Block 2 so that it could uh, work better, better, a different type of a hatch. And we weren't going to have 100% oxygen on takeoff. Uh, we were going to slowly bleed off the mixture in the spacecraft until when we were in orbit. Then we had 100% oxygen, which was not as dangerous at a at a low pressure than it was on on the on the surface. And so uh, the, the the accident occurred in January of '67, and then by uh, December of '68, we could launch Apollo 8. And of course, we had a we had Apollo Seven ahead of that, and that was in November. That was an Earth orbital flight, and if uh, that proved out to be success, that would then let Apollo Eight go. Uh, the story of Apollo Eight is quite interesting. It was originally going to be an Earth orbital flight to uh, have a high reentry return to prove out that it could go through the atmosphere at the velocities that would be required uh, coming back from the moon. But uh, two things happened in 1968. We heard that the Russians were going to put a man around the moon, not orbit, just to circumnavigate in the late fall of 68. And two, uh, we didn't have a lunar module that we were going to use on Apollo 8 to test it out uh, until 1969. And so they made it change in the, uh, in the schedule, and if Apollo 7 was successful on its 11-day uh, flight around the Earth, then Apollo 8 would be uh, sent uh, to orbit the moon. So uh, the, I guess the goal was here was to beat the Soviets to, to, to circumnavigate the moon. That was the, well, the original? Well, yeah, that was uh, one of the reasons. It was a sort of a space race, beat the Russians. Uh, but, you know, uh, I didn't think too much about that. Uh, to think that this kind of uh, work that we were doing, of exploring, was so, you know, uh, so great to me that, uh, that I really thought that this was going to be uh, an amazing part of my life. It is amazing. And, you know, to think that uh, in a short period of time, a mission that would beat the Soviets to the moon take some images um, of landing possible landing sites, uh, take two lunar orbits, and then return you all safely to the Earth. Uh, NASA made it seem pretty easy, but i got to believe there were some tremendous risks involved in the mission. Well, yeah, the Apollo 8, to look at it, was uh, a very risky uh, attempt. Uh, the Saturn V, which we used to go to the moon, 
had only been flown two times before unmanned, and both times they had problems with it. So to make that determination that they had successfully solved the problems to allow them to go on board the Saturn uh, for the third flight was uh, was a risky decision. Uh, but actually, when we look back at most of the lunar flights all the way up to Apollo 17, the Apollo 8 mission had some of the least problems associated with it. Uh, everything sort of worked perfectly, which was, I guess, a, a really a boom to the uh, space program. I'm just amazed in that short period of time, uh, you know, the first Apollo manned mission was only just a few months before Apollo 8. Then uh, you and uh, Frank Borman and, and Anders uh, jump on a rocket that hasn't been tested, that's going to take you to the moon with humans on it. Uh, quite an experience. Uh, during the launch, you reached speeds of like 17,000 miles per hour, but then you had a transition to a speed of like 25,000 miles an hour uh, to get you to the moon. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, by the way, first of all, it got us into uh, Earth orbit so we could check out our spacecraft before we could uh, commit it all the way to the moon. Uh, of course, it looked fine. And then we, uh, on our third, the third stage of our big booster still attached to us, when we got on the far side of the Earth, uh, away from the moon, uh, we hit the engine a second time, and that gave us that uh, 25,000 miles an hour velocity. We were actually put on a long elliptical orbit, just short of escape velocity, which means once we're on that speed, we would not return back to the Earth. But this was a long elliptical orbit that uh, put its uh, perigee around the Earth and the apogee way out 240,000 miles uh, to where the moon would be two and a half days later. And uh, this speed, we could coast all the way out to where the moon would be. The velocity, of course, would slow down as we went out because of the Earth's uh, attraction, its gravity pulling us back. And we get out to uh, this what we call the sphere of influence, where the moon's gravity now was stronger than the Earth's, and that's about uh, uh, five-sixths of the way out. And we have slowed down to about 2,000 miles an hour, uh, but now we're only about uh, 20,000, 25,000 miles from the, uh, from the moon, and we started then speed up, and when we got to the moon and met the moon as it, it came up to where we were, we were doing about 6,000 miles an hour. What's it like to be the first humans to see the side of the moon that no humans had ever seen before? Now, that was the real exploration, though, was to see the far side of the Earth, or the moon, rather, to see all those craters on the far side, which no one had ever really seen before. Uh, and uh, and then to see the Earth as it really is, uh, some 240,000 miles away. Uh, but I think the, the photograph of Earth, which we call Earthwise, was perhaps uh, uh, a great explanation to everybody exactly what we had, what we were living on, and um, uh, what the Earth really was. That must have been quite an experience when you, uh, I guess, during your third orbit out of 10, uh, the uh, command module is turned around to the, the lunar horizon where you could actually see the Earth. And, and is that where you first, the first time you'd actually see Earth rise from the moon? Well, that was the first time that we actually remember seeing the Earth rise. We were so concentrated looking back at the moon that uh, it was probably the third orbit when we saw the Earth, Earth come, uh, you know, rise out of the lunar horizon.
Who did take the uh, that famous picture that uh, we see now? In the- well, it was argued for many years, but actually it was uh, Bill Anders took the picture with a colored film and a telephoto lens, which the picture itself makes the Earth look like it's a little bit bigger than it is. I have a question myself. Is What is it like to be in the shadow of the moon? That must have been quite an experience. Well, there's three things about the moon. There's the, the moon is lit up by the sun, daylight, essentially. Then there's a part of the moon that is lit up by the Earth, but not by the sun. And it looks like uh, uh, out here in the country, say, on the Earth, of new fallen snow on a, on a clear night where you can... Uh, you can actually see the features sort of dark, you know, grayish color, but uh, uh, but you can still see the features of the moon. And then there's the section that neither the earth shine or the sunshine is on the moon, and then it's completely black. And that's about the only time you can see stars, because uh, when you look it out and you you have the moon in you know very close view that the eyes are adjusted to the lights off the moon and, and are not able to see the stars. On your final lunar orbit, uh, you had a live transmission back uh, to the Earth, and that was the most-watched television broadcast in history. Well, it's quite apropos that we were able to uh, do Apollo 8 uh, on Christmas Eve uh, and be around the moon on Christmas Eve. And when you think about 1968, which uh, maybe a lot of your listeners uh, don't realize that uh, 1968 was not a very pleasant year uh, in, uh, in the United States. Things were going on. There were, war was going on, of course, uh, an unpopular war. Uh, assassinations, uh, riots were going on. And uh, I feel very proud to do the one thing at the end of the year that was positive for everybody. I have to say that I do remember uh, watching and listening to the broadcast, and as you said, it was a, a very difficult time for the U.S. that year and the world. As you all read from the book of Genesis, I just felt myself a feeling of unity and hope. Uh, it was just a wonderful experience. Uh, thank you all for that. Who, whose idea was it? Was it one of the Apollo Crews members' ideas to, uh, to read from the book of Genesis? It was a... Uh the wife of a newspaper man who we had asked to give us some good thoughts about what to say. And the wife had mentioned the fact that the first 10 verses of Genesis from the Old Testament would be most appropriate because that was the foundation of three of the major world's religions. This was your final lunar orbit when you read from the book of Genesis, so you immediately had to get ready to come back home. Is that correct? Yeah, after that, well, that was on the ninth orbit. On the tenth orbit, we got all prepared as we came around to lit, light the engine and, uh, and escape from the satellite of the moon. Certainly one of the most memorable Apollo missions. Right. You are listening to Cosmic Perspective Radio with today's guest, Gemini and Apollo astronaut Captain James Lovell. The original crew of Apollo 13 mission was supposed to be Alan Shepard Edgar Mitchell and Stuart Russo. Why did we have a crew swap uh, of missions? Well, I was scheduled for Apollo 14, and Shepard and crew had Apollo 13. But uh, Alan Shepard had uh, uh, contracted or had a thing called Meniere's disease, which uh, was in his ears, I guess. I'm not too sure. 
exactly about it, but he was unstable and tended to uh, you know, uh, not, not to be able to walk correctly. But he found out uh, a doctor in California that could cure that disease. And uh, he went to that doctor, and he was successful to cure the disease. So uh, they wanted to give him the very next flight. But if you remember correctly, all Shepard had done uh, in the space program was that first flight of 15 minutes suborbital. And he hadn't trained since he contracted that Meniere's uh, disease. So NASA a hierarchy decided that he needed more training. And so Nick Slayton pulled me aside one day and said, would you mind taking Apollo 13 and giving Shepard Apollo 14? And I said, no, it just makes me uh, makes our crew take off a lot six months earlier. And so that's what happened. The launch of Apollo 13 was on April 11th, 13, 13 Central Time. I, there are a lot of people that are superstitious. I'm sure that you and the other astronauts were not, but uh, uh, some people were. But 13 seemed to come up a lot uh, during, and I, th- I believe the explosion was on April 13th uh, Central Time, if I remember correctly. But the mission had its first problem during launch. Uh, the second stage engine failure uh, occurred. What was the mission's, uh, mission control's workaround for that problem? Well, when the second stage uh, center engine shut down two minutes early, uh, quickly they looked at what the power was on the other four engines, uh, how much fuel we still had, and they determined that um, even with just four engines on the second stage, we had enough fuel on the second and the third stage to get us into Earth orbit and enough left over on the third stage to give us that velocity to go to the moon. We had problems, of course, with, before we took off. Uh, first four days before we were to take off, we discovered that one of the crew members had been exposed to the measles, and there was no doubt that he was going to get him, so we replaced him with his backup. And uh, it turned out that he never caught the measles. And so uh, Schweigert had a very short period of time to, uh, to get... I guess he was the backup, so he was training for the mission, correct? Well, up until the last two months, he was training for the mission, but he hadn't trained for two months when we were getting, you know, getting more and more uh, expert at uh, operating the systems and all that. But he was a, a really a very capable astronaut. And the movie, by the way, shows him earning his wings every day. But in, in reality, uh, if I had to replace a crew member, Swiker was a good person. I understand that uh, there was a little bit of humor in this mission that uh, Jack Swigert f- realized he forgot to pay his taxes. That's Kyle's... right. He, he forgot to pay his taxes. And uh, we found out that he was out of the country, so he, <laughs> he had some time. <laughs> so he was able to get an extension. <laughs> yeah. Things went relatively smoothly uh, for the next day or so, and then there was a, a live transmission back to Earth from the crew, that uh, I guess none of the networks actually picked up. Is that correct? Well, I forget the exact time. Uh, in our flight plan, we were supposed to do a television program to send back uh, to uh, Earth. Uh, they were going to then transmit it to the three networks at that time. Uh, we went through with the program. It went down to Mission Control. It was uh, sent out to uh, the three networks. None of them carried it. Uh, one was a live network with uh, some people, uh, and so I could see why they wouldn't carry it. But the other two, one had a baseball game going on, and one was a sitcom. Uh, 
uh, that was that took precedence over our broadcast. And of course, unfortunately, uh, we didn't have Fox and CNN in those days, so uh, which we probably would have carried it. So uh, it, it was uh, lost uh, to uh, uh, to the public. Yes, and I, I know myself being able to only watch a few stations on TV back then. There there weren't many choices. Right after the TV transmission, Mission Control asked for a specific task to be performed. Uh, stir the cryogens? Yeah, well, we, every once in a while we have to stir the cryogenics because they seem to get uh, stratified a little bit. And so uh, I was uh, I was with uh, Fred Hayes of the Lunar Module. Jack uh, did the job of of uh, stirring the cryos by means of a little uh, fan in the heater or in the liquid oxygen tank that also had a, had a heater to it. And uh, unbeknownst to us that uh, on launch day, actually, they could not remove the liquid oxygen. Well, it wasn't launch day. It was two weeks before the last test. Uh, they could not remove the liquid oxygen from one of the tanks, so they applied ground power uh, voltage to the tank and severely damaged the heater system in the tank. And when Jack uh, threw the switch, a spark had occurred in the tank and caused a fire. And, uh, of course, liquid oxygen, anything will burn with that. And it blew the tank neck off and uh, exposed the liquid into the zero area of uh, the vacuum, uh, of which the tank was uh, assigned to. And that all flashed into a gas and blew the entire side of the spacecraft out and damaged our second liquid oxygen tank, and that's the, the gas that we saw leaking from the spacecraft. That's when the, 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 uh, that's when the famous words were spoken. Uh, yeah. Uh, Houston, we had a problem. Houston, we got a problem. Uh, your first thoughts when you heard the explosion, did you think it was an explosion at first? Well, we didn't know. Uh, we first thought that a, a, a meteorite had hit the spacecraft, and uh, at maybe the lunar module. And uh, that uh, we might be uh, losing an atmosphere. Now, the hatch was opened uh, to expose both the lunar module and the command module at the same. So, we, first of all, we tried to close the hatch. And we found out that that was not necessary. So, at this point, I guess with both oxygen tanks gone, the mission was scrubbed, as you knew at that point. And you, you had to get into the lunar module? Yes, we got in the lunar module and used it as a lifeboat to get home. Uh, we lost everything in the command module, lost our oxygen, our, uh, all of our electrical power, and we could not use the, uh, the, the propulsion system. And so we used the lunar module propulsion system and its guidance system uh, in a series of maneuvers that get us back on the, on the free return course again to make a safe landing back on Earth. Was it uh, a challenge to use the LEM as a, as, as a propulsion device? Uh, it wasn't intended. Well, it had never been used before in that category, but, you know, uh, we were test pilots, so that was our job. When was the decision made to slingshot around the moon and, and come around back to home instead of, I mean, why not just turn around and come back? Well, there was no way to turn around and come back. We didn't have the use of the main rocket engine, so we had to use the original, uh, original track to the moon and the moon's gravity to slow us down after we passed it and get on the return track back to the Earth. So you're basically in a lifeboat, uh, the lunar module, 
which was uh, basically designed for life support for only two people for a short period of time, and now you had three. Tell us a little bit about how you kind of worked around these, uh, these problems. Well, one of our problems was that they built up a carbon dioxide of the lunar module. But with the help of crew systems division, they figured out a way of using duct tape and uh, an old sock and a piece of plastic and a piece of cardboard from a, one of the manuals and uh, take a square canister from the dead command module and fit it into the lunar module environmental system to remove the carbon dioxide. So that was one of the critical things that we had to do to uh, make sure that we wouldn't be poisoned. What was the temperature like in the limb? Uh, the limb, uh, this temperature kept dropping all the way down until by the time we were ready to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere uh, and jettison the lunar module, it was down to about oh, 34 degrees Fahrenheit. So at that point, you didn't have your spacesuits on. You were just in temperatures that were very close to freezing. Yeah. Actually, we didn't use our spacesuits. Uh, we kept in our in-flight suits all the way. Wow. As you made course corrections on the way back, did you have to do any of the corrections manually? Got the last one we had to do manually because we could not afford the electrical power to keep the guidance system going. So, very fortunately, I had uh, on Apollo 8, that was one of the emergency procedures that we had to design because being the first flight, we weren't too sure what we'd encounter. And it came in quite handy on Apollo 13. When you returned to the command module, which you eventually had to do, what were the conditions like in the command module? Well, the command module was quite cold because we, uh, of course, uh, the way we control the temperature in the spacecraft is take the uh, extra heat that's thrown off by the uh, uh, electrical systems, and uh, then we had radiators to get rid of the extra heat uh, that we did need to keep the spacecraft warm. Uh, of course, with all the electrical systems shut down, uh, we were losing more uh, heat uh, from the spacecraft than we were getting in from the sun. So uh, that's why it slowly kept dropping all the way home. Well, one of the major problems we had, we used some of the electrical power in the command module from the little battery that we had that was used for the final plunge through the Earth's atmosphere. So we had to figure out a way of uh, recharging that with using the lunar module's batteries, which was done quite successfully. And uh, so that uh, th that battery then we could uh, turn back on all the systems of the command module just before we re-entered the atmosphere so we could use the guidance system to uh, project the proper guidance and make a safe landing. During re-entry, you typically have a loss of communications for about five minutes, uh, but I believe it was a bit longer for the Apollo 8 crew. Well, it's because our, our trajectory in the uh, corridor to land was uh, quite shallow, which meant that our, uh, our blackout period for communications was a little bit longer. When you finally landed in the Pacific, did any thoughts come to you as, uh, you know, other than technical thoughts, uh, land in the Pacific, we were very happy, we looked at each other, congratulated ourselves that we, we made it successfully back uh, to the Earth, and uh, obviously we were pretty happy uh, astronauts. Due to a technical glitch during the interview, I didn't get the opportunity to record thank you with Captain Lovell, but I was able to meet him several times later and thank him in person. Captain James Lovell, one of 24 humans to fulfill the American dream of sending men to the moon and returning them safely to the earth.
Cosmic Perspective Radio is an Andy Poneros production. Thanks for listening to this 365 Days of Astronomy podcast.